Do you want, how do you want to do it? Do you want to walk round the garden? That would be lovely, uh, just, or yeah. at least uh, some part of it. I'm just going to put on my boots. Okay. Um, I'll be one minute. No, so I'll wait here. You'll stay there. No yeah. problem. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to take you round the back of the house and not tell you anything until we get there. Excellent. Just watch out, slip it here. This is the garden of Kilruddery, and I'm with its owner, Lord Meath. Kilruddery is the only surviving formal garden in Ireland from the 17th century. There are older gardens, but this is the only one to have prevailed with its original layout intact since it was first made in the late 1600s. Walking through this beautiful place is to step back 300 years in time to catch a glimpse of a golden age in garden making. Okay, we'll just we'll just go to this um, gate here. Well, <clears throat> the garden's about approximately 92 acres, which also includes a walled garden, um, and <clears throat> which is about four and a half acres. Um, the gardens here are Baroque-style French, and this garden is divided up into the three French Baroque styles. You have a bosquet, you have what they call canals, we call them the long ponds, and beyond that is a ha-ha. And then to the right, you have what's called a wilderness. And then in the distance, you will see there's a, a roadway going on into the estate which takes your eye from the garden to towards the estate. This magnificent garden is all lines, squares and angles and its verdant geometry stretches out southward from the house. In front, twin rectangular canals, the long ponds, cover just over an acre. The line between them runs to a fountain and continues perfectly to the avenue of European limes beyond. The bosque lies to the left, a sequence of crisp, ancient hedges enclosing 12 triangular lawns, and to the right, the so-called wilderness. It looks a little relaxed today, but three centuries ago, these were planted in precise 20-foot squares, a chessboard of lime in this wonderland. When this garden was created in 1682 for Edward Brabazon, the fourth Earl of Meath, it was a public demonstration of refined taste, knowledge and power. Its survival perhaps owes to the fact that it has remained in the hands of one family ever since. Do you walk around the gardens very much? Do you spend a lot of time in them? Um, not as much as I should. I'm really more a forestry person. And on this place, we've got quite a lot of woodland um, and parkland trees. Yes. Um, and I'm, I'm better at that, really. I'm not you wanted a, your garden weeded and flowers planted, I wouldn't be your man, I'm afraid. Um, but yes, I mean, I've, I've inherited a, a sort of a, a fine Baroque garden, but um, you wouldn't employ me as a gardener. Okay, so, now you get as regards um, garden historians, right. what they find sort of exciting is the fact that here is a garden that has sort of hasn't progressed or moved in whatever it is, 300, 400 years. Um, so they find that rather extraordinary um, and fascinating. Uh, they ask 
how has it been able to last like that? And the answer is that either my ancestors didn't have the imagination to follow the norm or whatever, or else perhaps Irish history as a, a war zone every hundred years or so, and that might be something to do with the fact that it just stayed the same. Mm. Um, why, why would you think that? Well, simply that um, the Great Rebellion was in 1642. Then there was the English Civil War, which kind of convulsed. So you had quite a, you know, you had a good 20 years. It was all uncertain. You had Cromwell as well, which sort of, again, didn't help. Then you did have a, a sort of act of union, which um, didn't work the 98 rebellion you had agrarian problems in the great famine you know you had you had quite a lot of major disruptions ireland possesses some of the most wonderful historic gardens in the world but they are much more than aged beauty beneath neat lawns lie hundreds of years of complex captivating history they tell the story of a time when members of a powerful Irish elite spent vast fortunes making gardens to demonstrate their status and ambition. Of an age of reason and discovery, when gardens came to signify man's dominion over nature. Of a time of intrepid plant hunters venturing to claim the wonders of a new world for private Edens. Yet set against a terrible backdrop of war and poverty in Ireland, this beauty was created in a contested landscape. I'm Mary Brophy, and in this tale of politics, pleasure and empire, we explore the influences and magnificent obsessions that brought Ireland's formal gardens and landscapes into being. Visiting great Irish gardens that have survived, and beautiful ghosts long forgotten, we reveal some incredible garden makers and explore their legacy. Our story begins in the middle of the 17th century, as Charles II is restored King of England, Scotland and Ireland. Well, gardens go back to prehistory, uh, of course, but uh, gardens really, we know, what we start knowing about gardens is in the medieval period, and especially with the monasteries. Terence Reeve-Smith, architectural and garden historian. So they had kitchen gardens, which were very intensively used, two or three acres, perhaps more, together with orchards, again, two or three acres. Gardens that you see in the beginning of the 17th century with the plantation period, with the, with the whole new era of country houses being built in Ireland, and these new gardens are closely related to the manor houses. Because of the disturbed times, shall we say, and also to protect the gardens, they were behind walls. From the, really from about 1610 to the rebellion of 1641, there was a tremendous building um, in Ireland of country houses all over the place, all the manor houses everywhere, hundreds of them. Most of them were destroyed during the rebellion of 1641, which went on for 10 years. Um, uh, but, of course, they all had their associated gardens and they were destroyed too. The second phase takes place after the restoration of King Charles II, when Ireland then enters another era of peace and prosperity and there's another renewed um, rebuilding of country houses all over Ireland. Uh, essentially, this was the, really the first phase, as it were, of, of ornamental gardening on a big scale happening in Ireland. And a kind of central motif of the second half of the 17th century in Ireland is lands being seized, granted, seized, granted. Writer and garden historian Vander Costello. So after um, Cromwell's accession, anyone obviously who was associated with the king and the crown 
went into exile. So a lot of people like the, for instance, Duke of Ormond, who was one of the guardians of the young Charles II, the young king, he spent all his exile in the Low Countries. They were exposed to, you know, European ideas, European styles of gardening. Um, so some people were very canny. When the crown uh, was restored and Charles II was restored to the throne, a lot of people who had obviously worked for him or worked on his behalf were either regranted their old land or people like, um, you know, sort of newbies who had supported him were given grants of land. People had just come out of the Cromwellian period, which was very dour, uh, very religious, sort of pilgrim father type of thing, um, very strict. And Prince Charles was this wonderfully flamboyant character. He's most famous for the amount of mistresses he had. His poor long-suffering wife actually never had a child with him. She was incapable of having a child with him, yet he had dozens of um, these children born with his many mistresses so he was so there was just something very glamorous about him um, great joie de vivre a sort of a bawdy era and an era for sort of show and glitter and throwing off the shackles of the terrible civil war that had gone before and the dreariness and the gloom so people were looking forward to having a bit of fun in their life again Charles took the throne in 1661, his first cousin Louis XIV of France was in Versailles, embarking on the greatest garden-making endeavour Europe had ever seen. Both monarchs embraced a revolutionary idea of this age, that man could reclaim his divine right to rule nature. So when Charles reclaimed the throne and excavated a great long canal at Hampton Court Palace, flanking it with straight avenues of lime trees, he was controlling and dominating nature on a breathtakingly grand scale in his garden and reminding his kingdom of his power. So we're now coming up what we call the angles. It's a pat droit, goose's foot, um, and it's these triangular hedges with little lawns in between. And we've planted trees in various parts of them. But in France, the pure, purest attitude is to just have them without trees. And these are part of the three and a half miles of hedging that we have here. And this hedging is? This is, uh, sorry, yes, hornbeam, uh, beech, um, uh, yew, and lime. As the gardens at Kilruddery were being laid out in 1682, Louis XIV was moving his court to Versailles, where the palace and 250 acres of elaborate gardens became the centre of his kingdom. Over two decades, terraces, fountains, a grand canal large enough to hold ships, and tree-lined avenues that stretched mile after mile had been carved out of swamp by the king's gardener, André Lenote. Nature was levelled, geometric lines imposed on the landscape with plants tightly clipped into unnatural spheres and cones. And it was spectacular. This was gardening as high art. Lenotre's influence and the fashion for this formal design quickly spread through the gardens of Europe's elite and powerful. Here, Kilruddery claims some remarkable lineage. This is, this, so, yes, what you're looking at is Bonnet's landscape here. And they were laid out by a gentleman called Monsieur, we think it's Philip 
Bonnet, but we've only got a record of his surname. And he came here in 1682 uh, to work for the fourth Earl of Meath. And he was a Frenchman who was one of the many disciples of André Le Nôtre, who, who organized the creation of the Versailles Gardens for Louis XIV. It's now a part of Irish gardening lore that around 1682 or 1686, a French gardener, Bonnet, was persuaded to leave his employer, Sir William Petty, to lay out the gardens at Kilruddery. But nothing else is known of Monsieur Bonnet. Um, so when he came here, um, he, we have no archives about him. But we do know that he was here for about 15 years, but, but it's extraordinary that we have no record. But he basically laid out these gardens in a miniature sort of Versailles fashion. Well, there are records going back to about 1730 of tulips and auriculas that were bought from Holland. Um, so we're, we're quite good on archives about the garden, but we have very little about Monsieur Bonnet, which is infuriating. Um, okay, I think... I'm the allure of an unsolved mystery, a tantalizing, elusive path through this garden to Versailles only adds to its charm. In the Bodleian Library, <coughs> there's a reference to him, um, that he came to work for Lord Meath from um, a gentleman in Oxfordshire. And he came in 1682. Okay. But that literally is the only thing. Um, I've been in touch with someone in France, and they've been sort of researching. And, that, uh, and it could be that his name is Bonnell or someone else, but um, at the moment we haven't really managed to crack the, crack the case. You're grasping at, at, um, at straw, uh, but that's what I've been told by my grandmother and by my parents. Historian Vandra Costello has her own theory about the Bonnet enigma. Well, I think it's a misunderstanding. I think it's all stems from a misunderstanding or a misreading of papers. There are, it's, it's a bit complicated to sort of go into, but we know that William Petty had a gardener when he was in Dublin in George's Lane called Bonnet or Bonnet. We're not sure, Bonnet or Bonnet. In a later letter, William Petty mentions that Bonnell, because I've looked at the original manuscript, and it doesn't seem to be any tea, it looks like Bonnell goes to my Lord of Meath. And this has been taken and interpreted to mean that Petty's French sounding gardener had gone to the Earl of Meath at Kilruddery. The later reference to Bonnell going to my Lord of Meath. He doesn't say the Earl of Meath. He doesn't say where. So I would think perhaps there are two reasons. One is that uh, Kilroddery was way under, way before the letter 
was dated. We have references to um, the Earl of Mead's agents discussing the plans for the garden and how the garden was being designed and how it was coming along. So we know the garden was well underway before any Bonnell went to my Lord Mead. Secondly, the um, Accountant General of Ireland at the time was a man called James Bonnell, who was involved with um, the members of the Dublin Philosophical Society, etc. His closest friend was the Bishop of Mead, who would have been known as Lord Mead. And we know that James Bonnell spent sort of the end of his life living with the Bishop of Mead, Lord Mead. So I think it's much more likely that Petty was referring to his friend James Bonnell going to the Archbishop. So if the garden was underway, the designs of Kilrodgery were um, the Earl of Mead's designs. They were his own designs. And he would have, he would have already seen these um, gardens in France in, in, on the continent. Well, he was a soldier and he did travel to France. We know that. And obviously he had an interest in gardening because it does appear that it was his designs. He probably worked with gardeners, etc. And, you know, was a bit of to and fro of ideas. But it is the finest example of a 17th century garden in the entire Ireland and the British Isles completely. You know, you won't find a better surviving example. It... Um, really is superb it's as it should be we see a garden how it would have looked in the 17th century we see the wonderful avenues we see everything and i i really um i don't think it's any loss to say it's nothing to do with denote because it's spectacular and it's a great credit to the the brabazon family that they had this ancestor who had created this fantastic garden which has survived all these centuries it's wonderful there's no doubt that kilrudgery was directly influenced by versailles by the 1680s, the palace and gardens were already a popular spot on the Grand Tour, and La Nostra's audacious style was replicated across Europe. With or without a French gardener, Edward Brabazon was laying out the most fashionable of gardens. And then you have the, um, the driveway going through the um, European limes. But that was quite a deliberate design feature to yes, allow was, your view to take, carry. It was take the eye from this sort of manicured garden off into the farm and the compine sauvage. big difference in the post-era, the later 17th century, that's from 1660 onwards, is that for the first time, although they are building their gardens behind walls, at least initially, the big change is that the gardens now jump over the walls, as it were, into the landscape. So the whole landscape is being taken in, more or less, as a garden. Until the 17th century, most Irish noblemen, not all, there were exceptions, there were some lovely early 17th century manor houses, but generally people lived in very enclosed, fortified tower houses. So with, again, the influence of the, that the court had got when they were in exile, looking at the beautiful gardens in France and um, the Netherlands, they brought back these ideas and people built their houses, opened them out, created these great manor houses. So you had people who you mentioned earlier, like the uh, Duke of Ormond, James Butler, who came back to his old ancestral castle in Kilkenny, which had been a fortified, defensive castle, and opened it out and made it look more like a French chateau and opened out the gardens, knocked down walls, knocked down a lot of the enclosures. So gardens became sort of a link 
between the house and the garden was very much created and views and vistas and this just big opening out of everything, opening out of um, minds for knowledge, scientific knowledge, an opening out for pleasure, um, an opening out of just ideas, houses, art. It was a great sort of period of uh, creativity and flowering after a period of sort of great sort of gloom in, in England and Ireland. And as they looked over the garden wall, a world was waiting to be discovered. Emerging disciplines in philosophy and mathematics in the 1600s, with Francis Bacon, René Descartes, and later Isaac Newton, revolutionized the way men considered nature and the world. If the laws of nature could be observed and understood, then nature could be harnessed for man's progress. Coinciding as it did with a time of exploration and the beginnings of international trade, this new science promised not only a greater appreciation of God's creation, but the pledge of economic riches for all. Across the empire, an eager pursuit of knowledge resulted. Fellowships of men formed to present and discuss their latest research or inventions, and gardens and plants were at the heart of many. One latte to go, please. Dublin was second city in the empire for a long time and coffee houses and um, chocolate houses began to come in in the late 17th century. But they were also used as meeting places and they were great sort of intellectual salons. It was like sort of we imagined sort of Paris to be in, you know, in the 1950s. Um, so the Dublin Philosophical Society, when they were talking about setting up this society to rival or mirror the one in um, London, the Royal Society, they first met in a coffee house. A um, hundred years later, uh, we see florist clubs and, you know, World Horticultural Society's first meetings, their germs are in meeting up in taverns and coffee houses. So the Dublin was very cosmopolitan at the time. We forget that. And Ireland, as today, was the first stop on the way back from the Americas. So when things were coming in from the New World, they all came through Ireland. to uh, Crow Street and a man called William Crow built a house here. This was the place where the Dublin Philosophical Society finally had their first proper permanent meeting rooms. It was called the Crow's Nest. Uh, we know it had a garden and a meeting room. It also had a little sort of lab where they could undertake their scientific um, experiments. And they had a hall where the society could meet and people could read papers and they could have these discussions. On the 30th of October, 1683, William Molyneux wrote to his younger brother Thomas, then studying medicine in the Dutch city of Leiden, telling him that a new society had met in Dublin 12 or 15 times, and he was delighted to report that all the virtuosi of this place favour it much. William was a champion of this new Carthesian thinking. He'd written the first English translation of Descartes' Meditations three years earlier and counted among his friends the philosopher John Locke and astronomer Edward Halley, who by now was calculating the return of his comet. William's Dublin Philosophical Society was a college of landowning gentry, physicians and natural philosophers with a deep desire to put Dublin on the enlightened map. By the following May, they'd taken rooms at the Crow's Nest, where William tells Thomas they had a fair garden for plants, and each week earnestly presented their latest discoveries. It was a time of huge scientific endeavour, so 
they were very interested in that sort of thing. They were also interested in mad sort of projects like sort of, you know, crazy animals and William Petty's double bottom boat, these mad ideas as well. So we have we have a record, for instance, of one example of uh, research being carried out into peas. And Narcissus Marsh was involved, from Archbishop's Mar- Marsh's Library, which had a great collection of botanical materials. And they were very interested in all this sort of thing. And then they would have their papers and disseminate those papers amongst their members. We had the Molyneux brothers, one across in the Low Countries. So things would be sent back and forth from there. Richard Buckley, um, the second uh, Sir Richard Buckley, second baronet, was a member of the Dublin Philosophical Society. And we have him writing endless letters to his friend Martin Lister, who's a surgeon in England. And his letters are all kept in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. And we have him discussing his experiments with bee houses, his experiments with growing crops, how he wanted to set up a vineyard in Ireland, and these letters going back and forth. So they were, and things were disseminated around the place. Accumulating knowledge was everything to these men. Members delighted at the increasing numbers of gardening and botanical books that began to appear from the 1650s. Plant collections became a particular fascination, no longer sought after for mere curiosity, but now with more empirical purpose. At the centre of a green oasis, surrounded by the hustle and noise of the city, lies a precious piece of our botanical history. This is the herbarium, and so in this building we have a collection of three-quarters of a million dried plants. In order to demonstrate what people were finding in other corners of the world, they would press and dry plants and ship them back to Europe, and they form the basis of our knowledge of the botany of this country and the rest of the world. So we're going to go up to the library, and I want to show you some of our earliest plant collections, which remarkably come from the Netherlands. They come from the Leiden Botanic Gardens. I'm at the Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin, and director Matthew Jebb is delicately unwrapping a 350-year-old leather tome. This is Thomas Molyneux's Hortus Sicca, literally a dry garden. So this is the oldest collection of plants from Leiden. Plants collected there in the Botanic Gardens in 1661. So it's a remarkably early volume. And we don't allow our visitors to snip bits of plants off. And even in those days, it would have been even more severely patrolled. You know, people could only get into a botanic gardens at the time if they were members of a society or a college that actually owned the botanic gardens. Often, the plant growing in the, the border or bed there was the only example in the country, sometimes the only example in the entire continent. You know, it had come from the Americas, from China, from Asia. Um, they were growing plants that were of immense value. Here's a, here's a buttercup, which is Ranunculus montanus um, aconitifolia. So it's the, the buttercup of the mountains with aconite-shaped leaves and globose flowers. Um, and it became later Ranunculus globosa. And here we have plants actual plants stuck to paper with written below them the knowledge of that day and it is a you know it's a great insight there were no floras then this knowledge came from years and years of study and it is a you know irreplaceable 
gem, this uh, early herbarium. Thomas, who would go on to become Ireland's state physician, bought the collection as a medical student for 39 Dutch guilders in 1684, and it remained a valued possession throughout his lifetime. For Thomas, living in a treacherous era of war and plague, plants were not just beautiful, they fired the imagination with medicinal possibilities and were to be studied rigorously. And war was once again on Ireland's horizon. A Catholic James II was now on the throne, and when he had a Catholic heir, a horrified parliament called on his son-in-law William of Orange to invade. He did. And in 1689, James' eldest daughter Mary and her husband William, the claimed protector of Protestantism, were crowned joint monarchs of England, Scotland and Ireland. One Irishman was about to become a prominent member of William's new administration and was first appointed the king's ambassador to the court of Denmark. Just like his new king and queen, this envoy was obsessed with gardening. At his family seat outside Swords, he had ambitious designs to create one of the finest gardens in all the kingdom. Robert Molesworth was the remarkably proud owner of Brechtonstown, an estate of about 200 acres in the Ward Valley near Swords. The house doesn't exist anymore, but out the, the house you would have seen, first of all, the fountain. Architectural historian Finola O'Kane Crimmins. Then you would have seen the bastion walk in the distance with the trees along it, and then you would have seen into the great avenues of trees that he planted going south again to prospects of the Dublin mountains. Um, he has these bosques and wildernesses. There's a terraced garden here, a walled garden with statues, and he plants pinks. He's very fond of pinks as flowers. Um, so we know quite clearly what he planted, actually, in that terraced garden. He also had a great prospect at the end of his canal of Dublin Bay, which is important because he wrote that he liked to lie in bed and look at the ships coming into Dublin Bay. Um, but it's one of the first sea prospects that is very clearly identified because the sea is generally regarded as a dangerous environment, not a very attractive or beautiful environment until the mid-18th century. So Breckenston is quite far from the sea, so, so we can have this long canal with a view of the sea at the end of it, um, and he can lie in bed and look at that, but it's not so close that the sea is going to affect the trees um, or, or the planting that he's so um, concerned about. Robert Mosworth's concerns may have been compounded by the fact that a political life kept him abroad for long periods, so much of his gardening was done remotely. Across a series of letters he wrote to his wife Letitia between 1690 and 1723, we get magnificent and often entertaining detail of the making of a great garden at the turn of that century. From instructions on how elm and lime trees were to be protected until they'd grown, how gooseberries and white strawberries were to line the walks in the kitchen garden, to the exasperation he felt in absentia towards his wayward Irish gardener Nick, precise instructions on pruning hedges seemed to fall on deaf ears at least, as a horrified Robert discovered the finished shape to be nearer to a pineapple than the desired pyramid. Above all, the letters revealed that Robert Moseworth's garden was the confluence of his political leanings, his somewhat pompous inclinations, and his origins. Well, the, the Molesworth family were an English family. They came from Northampton in England. Historian Turtle Bunbury. And his grandfather was a guy called Anthony Molesworth, 
who uh, bankrupted himself by repeatedly hosting Queen Elizabeth. Uh, she would always come on her grand tours to come and stay at their mansion, and he ended up going bankrupt. Um, so Robert's father then, uh, he joined the army and came to Ireland with Cromwell's army, sets himself up as a merchant on Fishamble Street in Dublin, uh, marries an heiress, all-important heiress, um, and then he makes enough of a fortune to be able to um, grab hold of quite a lot of land during the land settlement um, and sends his son to Trinity. So Robert, who goes on to become the first Viscount Molesworth, he's born in 1656 and he goes to Trinity. He then marries uh, a lady called Letitia Coote, who is uh, a daughter of Baron Coluni uh, and a sister of a, an interesting man called Richard Coote, who's the Earl of Bellamont, uh, who will go on to become governor of New York and Massachusetts and New Hampshire for William III, for King Billy. So he's all wrapped up with quite an interesting circle of people, uh, particularly during the... Um, the lead-up to the Jacobite Wars or the Williamite Wars, where he completely throws his lot in with King Billy um, and the what will become the Whig Party um, in the in the lead-up to that. This was a time when allegiances sealed fates. Molesworth had been vocal in his support of William, and for his trouble, the Irish, largely Catholic Parliament, who still recognised James as king, confiscated Robert's estate on the seventh of May, sixteen eighty-nine. In Denmark. He received alarming reports that his precious Brechtenstein was being destroyed by Jacobites. I think part of the thing is that in the 1680s, when James II became king, uh, a lot of the Protestant landowners in Ireland, including Molesworth, uh, were attainted and had their lands taken away. Uh, so when William uh, wins uh, the war, they get their lands back, and this time they are going to make sure that they're not going to lose them again. So that becomes a very important part of the personality of the of the Irish Protestants or the Protestants based in Ireland, if you like, uh, the the new elite, um, which is a, a, a huge influence over Molesworth over the next 25 years of his life. Well, obviously, the king and aristocracy led, and everyone would follow, and the aristocracy would follow what the king did. Um, Mary was, I always imagined that she was slightly disloyal, being James's daughter, but um, she had lived in Orange, obviously, and um, the Dutch were very famous for their gardening skills, and the Palace of Hetlow had this wonderful classical garden, which has been recreated recently. So they set about introducing this sort of style of gardening in Britain, and any sort of Irish courtiers or people courtiers with land in Ireland adopted the same sort of ideas. Even as William prepared for war in Ireland, he and Mary were consumed with the creation of extraordinary Baroque gardens at their Hampton Court Palace. Designed to rival his arch enemies Versailles, not in scale, but in splendor and elegance. News spread of three 55-foot hothouses built to house Mary's beloved Indian plant collection. Of a parterre with intricate scrolling designs of turf and gravel, with 13 fountains and sown with over 20,000 bulbs. But William and Mary's love affair with garden making was more than mere diversion. As usurpers, the magnificence of their royal gardens was a strategic attempt to be recognized as powerful monarchs. And if Robert Molesworth's Eden was in Ireland, he favored England to make a career. From 1695, he stood as Whig MP in both Irish and English parliaments. 
His vantage in London made it easier for him to source plants and trees from the nursery of the day. Operated by George London and Henry Wise, the men had made reputation and fortunes working at Hampton Court. Brechtenstan would have only the best. The conifers were also coming in from North America at that time. For the first time, people were very um, unsure as to how big they would eventually get. Fanola O'Kane Crimmins. But he's very, he's very proud of his silver fir. He wants it to be a specimen tree on its own so that everyone can admire this great North American um, kind of introduction and know that he has the connections and the network that enables him to acquire that um, important fir tree. I mean, trees were regarded as a very, very profitable crop in the 18th century, which they were. The, the, all the, the Navy ships were built of wood. Um, huge amounts of money were being spent on ships. So if you planted trees, you were going to make a profit out of them eventually. And so he does spend a lot of money on tree planting. It is a characteristic of um, Northern Europe that, and of, I suppose in a way, Protestant thought that, that you are required, that profit and, and making something economically viable is, is the correct thing to do. Um, it's, it's necessary to produce money. And if you are doing things correctly, then by extension, you will produce money. So profit is a moral obligation as well. Um, so, so luxury and how that's couched, I think, at Brechtenstein, there's a slight discomfort with, with pure luxury um, or just something for appearance's sake. Everything, ideally, is useful and beautiful, that you want this dual meaning to run through all your activities um, and that by extension, by beautifying your landscape, you are also making it profitable. Uniting beauty and utility may have been a characteristic value of these settlers, but as historian and writer van der Kostelo describes it, a cult of improvement took hold. 17th century, late 17th century, and um, we start to see the use of the word improvement in relation to landscape. It's almost taken like a higher calling. These people read the classics, Virgil's Georgics, and all his advice on agriculture and gardening. So within improvement, this idea of a landowner being an improver, it was an intellectual exercise, political exercise, as well as um, ornamental and productive. In Ireland, there was a particular um, sort of political aspect to the gardens from the point of view that when we read the literature, um, it, 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 a lot of the time you can be reading papers and letters of the day and it seems quite shocking to our modern ears, but the sort of attitude to a lot of the um, British settlers and the colonialists was that Ireland, Irish people were sort of like these woodborne savages, sort of, you know, Thomas Hobbes' view. And um, they noted that, you know, we, we really didn't have a good record of sort of cultivation. The place didn't, was sort of bereft of trees. Um, it just the Irish way was very different. We were seen as a very, very different sort of species of people altogether. Um, so it was a real sign of sort of colonialism and conquering. When you saw, I remember, I think it was Austin Clark wrote in his poem, we know the house of the planter is known by its trees. Um, so when 
uh, a settler got their land in Ireland and they planted it and had these regimental rows of trees, which was the fashion at the time, the sort of geometric landscape, and these very fine gardens. They were like an oasis of cultivation. This was sort of uh, almost a signal to the sort of native Irish that this is what civilization does. It's culture, cultivation, good husbandry, looking after the land, um, you know, a more sort of um, elevated way of thinking, a more intellectual way of thinking. And it was a justification for what they were doing, but it was this pioneering spirit and, you know, it was a sort of, um, as I said, there was this extra layer of um, maybe sort of politicisation to adopting this style of gardening in Ireland and developing these great estates where these sort of, the locals were shut out and these people lived behind domain walls in their magnificent, well-tended gardens. And one of the biggest uh, compliments that could be paid to anybody when we read these letters and papers at the time was saying, well, um, so-and-so's garden is wonderful, they've made it English-like. So the idea was to create this new sort of English paradise or Garden of Eden in Ireland out of this sort of land of wild and hairy men and create this sort of idealised kingdom and little idealised estates. an 18th century gentleman, your house and landscape was an extension of yourself mm. and um, how you designed it, how you laid it out, how you thought about it, how you wrote about it, um, how you made it um, is, is and it also is what you believe in. So, so you're literally building your improvement of Ireland into the ground around you and demonstrating in your control of water, particularly at Brexton or, or, or and tree planting, that these initiatives, which someone like William Petty would have written into the, the kind of early schemes of improving Ireland, um, that, that you, you can carry these out and make them a physical reality. So there's a great confidence in, in that circle as to the power of, I think, ideas and architecture and um, design in general to change the world, which makes their places very interesting because they can be very easily connected to their political projects. But for the custodians of our historic gardens today, managing these early water features is not without its challenges. We have two reservoirs or stilling basins. Um, unfortunately, there's not much water available, but this, these are two stilling basins, and normally they'd be full of water. And I made a further stilling basin just above. Um, and what's the purpose of that? The, uh, yeah, well, the purpose is that um, <coughs> these stilling basins act as miniature reservoirs mm. and will hold water. Mm. And you've got a plug which you can take out and the water comes through. Um, <coughs> but uh, Brayhead became a golf course, which is up there, and uh, they don't want water, so when there's a lot of rain, it used to take a couple of days for the water to come through. Now it comes through in about six hours, so I had to make another stilling basin to hold back more water, because otherwise we, we've had one or two floods here in the garden, which is not good. Now, normally that fountain would be much higher but we're trying to conserve water, um, you know, for the ponds and for other fountains. So that's been turned down 
but normally it would be about 20 feet. Uh, yes, one is 0.5 something of an acre, and the other, the far one, the dirty one, is 0.62 of an acre. So they're quite big. But we're, we're, we're hoping to sort of clean this up, mm. and if we can cure our water problem, hopefully we'll have some decent flowing water. And what is your water problem? Uh, uh, water problem uh, basically is leaks. Right. And leaks in this pond here on the left-hand side. Um, and um, a leak in a big dam that was created in, the, in 1990. Uh, originally, all these water features came from um, a great big duck decoy uh, made probably 1680s um, in a bog. Um, <clears throat> that's now been planted up. Um, but we do get quite a lot of water from that, but we rarely required two dams to, you know, give sufficient water. Um, I'll show you some more fountains. They use a lot of water fountains. Mm -hmm. July 1717, as Handel unveiled his water suite for George I, Robert Molesworth, by now Viscount Molesworth, was hosting a man he believed to be the best architect in Europe, the Italian Alessandro Galilei. The Italians were renowned for their ornate water villas and knowledge of hydraulics, and Robert wished to put Galilei's expertise to use on the waterworks underway at Brechtonstown. With a view of ships and the sea above the house, Elaborate water terraces were designed to cascade down the natural slopes of the valley. It would be spectacular, and Robert wondered if the world was prepared for his magnificent creation. I think of all the branches of design in Ireland, um, waterworks are arguably necessary in lots of environments. So if you are going to spend money, it's probably the area where you will be least chastised for spending the money. At the same time, control of water throughout Europe always demonstrates agricultural expertise. And for people who are still making most of their money from agriculture, you had to be able to turn, make land productive. And um, so that, fundamentally is what Robert Molesworth is trying to do. But Brechtonstone is on top of a hill. Um, it's not, it has areas of it which are very good farming land, but Molesworth is not making all his money in, at Brechtonstone out of farming. So he's really using water to demonstrate this link back to Italy. He was one of the people who brought Alessandro Galilei into Ireland, who was um, a great water worker who had built all these fountains for the for the Grand Duke in Grand Dukes in Italy. Um, he sends his son over to Italy to learn about waterworks, to buy all the best books on fountains, to try to appreciate the engineering and the hydraulics which are necessary, um, and then to come back to Brechtonston and to try them out. And he spends that if where he does spend money, and he does spend his his wife is not always in agreement with where he spends the money but Molesworth will spend a lot of money on fountains and waterworks. 
um, which don't always work very well because um, hydraulic engineering was not a very um, well, scientific discipline at the time. So there was a lot of trial and effort. So the Great Canal at Brechtonston um, had to be manipulated many times partly because they would keep on filling it and then the water would just flow out of it again. Um, and so eventually they did obviously get some kind of hard compacted clay layer which could hold the water. Um, but it took a lot of trial and error and his wife certainly found it very tedious that so much money was being spent on waterworks um, when they could not necessarily afford it. So Robert Molesworth, despite being officially a very... Um, I suppose politically correct Whig gentleman in terms of profit and uh, useful is beautiful doesn't always carry through on this philosophy in his expenditure on waterworks. Robert's waterworks demonstrated his lifelong love affair with Italian culture but they also betrayed his status anxiety. His water engine would rival the one at Chelsea in London. His canal, he wrote, was considerably more attractive than the King's own in St. James's Park, and indeed the greatest in the entire kingdom. With all his experience of the world, he declared, he could not find better than his designs. Not a very attractive person, I think. I mean, he, he, he is fundamentally very immodest. Um, he is attracted to power. Um, he likes to demonstrate his acumen and his intelligence, which was considerable, and his education. Um, he does reveal a lot of himself and his motive in his letters to his wife. Um, many people are advantaged, I think, in that such letters do not survive because he does reveal more of his personality than, than one, would, one would like, you think. I think the locals or the people in the environment probably found his his overblown ambition somewhat entertaining. So I think he was probably undermining himself as well mm. in, in, in the grandiose character of his ambitions. He's very ambitious also in his professional advice in terms of getting Stephen Switzer, using Alessandro Galilei. He's trying to use the best professionals in Europe. But at the same time, these people are not familiar with the Irish environment. So what is good advice in Italy may not be good advice in Ireland. Um, and also he's very loath to actually trust the local workmen. And here there is a difference between the native Irish and, the, to, to use a phrase which is loaded, to, between the native Irish and ascend, the ascendancy gentleman who is Robert Molesworth. So Nick, who's his gardener, um, he deeply distrusts Nick and eventually tries to bring in expertise, plumbing expertise. Plumbers are very important always a plumber is is actually a water designer in the 18th century because they know how to do piping and they know how to do welding and they know how to kind of organize water but local plumbers and nick the gardener in particular are very suspect and so if he trusted them a bit more i think he probably would have had a better design but he is very fond of foreign advice mm. and in the irish environment that's not always sensible In 1720, rising water threatened to overflow Robert's Canal, causing him considerable headache. Rising stock prices were about to threaten everything. A frenzied boom in South Sea Company stocks built for much of 1720, based on the company's proposal to take over the British national debt and false claims of riches in the South Sea territories. By September, 
the market had collapsed, and with it, Robert Molesworth's grand designs. One of the greatest scandals of that era was the uh, South Sea Bubble. Historian Turtle Bunbury. Which was this company, a, a joint stock company, which was founded in 1711, and it was all about trading in South America and so on. Anyway, Viscount Molesworth and his grandson, uh, Robert Molesworth, were uh, invested heavily in the company, and then it famously burst the South Sea Bubble. It burst in 1720. He was absolutely livid and furious and wrote some uh, very amusing letters to us anyway. Uh, in which he was referring to trying to bring back these ancient Roman laws uh, where he felt that the directors of the company, and I'm sure this will appeal to some of your listeners, um, that the directors of the company should be sewn into sacks and thrown alive into the River Tiber. He, he had great ambition, that's true, and he had confidence in himself um, as a designer. Again, his wife actually had rather less confidence in, in what he was up to. And towards the end of the leisure series, maybe not the end of their lives, but and possibly when he had spent rather too much money, he did give her control over the estate, um, probably because he didn't have a leg to stand on and he had, you know, it had spent far too much money on waterworks and she then gets control um, and probably starts to do a rather more restrained design than her husband thought he should do. This was particularly after the South Sea bubble and the crash there. Yes. He started, I mean, that was basically what curtailed him, wasn't it? Well, I mean, we don't have complete, uh, the complete economic story of the um, Molesworth money. And in fact, it's very hard to do the history of money because people tend to lie about their money. Um, so. It, it, it's evident that Molesworth was being impacted by events in the City of London where a lot of people had speculated on the South Sea bubble and had lost a, a huge amount of money very rapidly. Um, and that was having an impact on the Molesworth finances. And so he had to kind of restrain himself, he had to cut back. Um, and uh, that, mu that must have been actually very difficult for him because he did want the correct setting um, for his identity as a great gentleman. By the summer of 1721, Robert concedes to Letitia that they are no longer in a position to complete the designs of their fountains. That Christmas, his son wrote with schemes and drawings for even more fountains and ornaments to beautify the gardens. Wistfully, Robert replied that he would do more if it wasn't for the expense. An obsessed garden maker to the end. His end came in 1725. Some of the features of Brechtenstown remain. The clear line of his grand Southern Avenue, the outline of his magnificent canal, but they're ghosts on the landscape of one of Ireland's great gardens. But as Robert Molesworth dies, 70 miles across the Irish Sea in rural Northumberland, a boy is growing up to become one of the most famous designers of them all, who would change the gardens and landscapes of Ireland utterly. Next time on Politics, Pleasure and Empire. So this was an extraordinary thing to happen. He got all these plants, uh, a thousand at least, uh, filled the whole shipload with them um, and brought them back to Ireland and they all survived. Daniel Robertson, poor man, he suffered from gout and he resorted to being pushed around uh, the, in a wheelbarrow. 
Gates directing all of the workers as they excavated the terraces. And this work took over 12 years and 100 men to create the extraordinary terraces that you, that you see at Paris Court today. The thrill of that total novelty, it's as remote then as Mars is today. And the fact that you could then possess one of these things personally and grow it in your own garden. Fundamentally, improvement fails very dramatically in the 19th century. And that has to complicate the reading of these landscapes, which doesn't necessarily happen in environments like Suffolk or Surrey. Um, it doesn't have the same tragedy. Politics, Pleasure and Empire, Making Ireland's Grand Gardens was written and presented by Mary Brophy and produced by Neil Boyle. The programme is an IWR media production for RTE Lyric FM funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.